0: Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice with a special episode in conversation here with Josh Rollerson, my producer and ace in the hole in all things on criminal injustice, we're putting together for you a few bits and pieces of news and information we want to get to you. We're posting this in place of a regular interview episode because next week we have a very special episode for you. We will be previewing the PBS series Uh, done by Lynn Novick, uh, one of the longtime associates of Ken Burns. The series is called College Behind Bars. Uh, You'll be able to see this on PBS on November 25th and 26th, all four episodes, but we've got both Lynn Novick And Wesley Keynes, who is one of the subjects of the film for you here on criminal injustice. So we thought we would take an extra week off, wait, give you the full weight of that great episode on the nineteenth of November, Tuesday. And today I'm here with Josh Rollerson, my producer. How you doing, Josh? I'm good, Dave. How are you? I'm so glad to have you with me for this conversation. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about.
1: Indeed. Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the College Behind Bars piece that's coming up. That's going to be really exciting. And then that is going to bring us kind of to the end of this chunk of season, I guess. Uh, we'll, we'll do that's a, right. a quick break for Thanksgiving. We'll come back with maybe a couple more fresh episodes and then finish out the year on our, our usual seasonal hiatus and play that's some right. of our best of stuff from the past. First- before we get into all that, uh, thought it would be worth taking some time to kind of clear the decks. We've covered a lot of stories in the last Boy, few sure months have. that have had subsequent developments that are worth uh, you know noting, worth addressing. So, if you're ready, should we start on down the list and start? Let's jump right in. All right, lightning round, criminal injustice. Okay. Okay. So back in August, on August 15th, we did a, a bonus episode about the federal death penalty and the Trump uh, administration's announcement that it would it would resume. few months later. Where are we at with that? What is the status? The
0: first executions under the Justice Department's plans to resume federal executions will take place in December of this year, 2019. There are five currently scheduled. Uh, I talked to everyone uh, back in August when we did that bonus about the, uh, the advisability or not of scheduling these sorts of things uh, in a climate uh, that was thoroughly politicized by the election uh, and that uh, seemed to take the worst possible cases as a way of in reinvigorating the federal death penalty. Uh, so many states have taken the death penalty off the table And the climate no longer favors the death penalty in the states. So I think it's a very interesting kind of contrarian development since uh, all of those things are in play. We have had no announcement from the Department of Justice uh, of any change in plans. So we should expect to see the first executions by the federal government in many, many years coming up in the month of December 2019.
1: Now, is there any recourse left in those cases? Are we talking about cases that have already been through all of the appeals processes and just been on hold?
0: Yes, everything has been done that can be done. The appeals have run. Uh, The warrants uh, and orders and so forth are all in place. Uh, The only thing that had been an open question was the execution drug. Mm -hmm. Um, this has been a problem for states with the death penalty and for the federal government for some time because if you use lethal injection, uh, the lethal injection method must be something that doesn't itself cause cruel and unusual punishment and therefore offend the Constitution. And uh, a lot of the companies that made these drugs that went into the execution cocktail – all the ones in Europe, and even some of them over here, had said, we don't want any part of this. You can't use our stuff for that. We're withdrawing these things. We're withdrawing our permission. We won't sell them to you, all, all kinds of uh, uh, those sentiments. And that resulted in a search for an execution cocktail that would actually work and would not cause uh, extra suffering other than somebody being killed. Uh, a drug cocktail was approved by the courts, in the last year, it's been used in some of the states, and once that was in place, the federal government was free to open up its execution pipeline again. It didn't do that, though, until this announcement, and that's why we're, we are where we are.
1: So what's different about this new drug cocktail? Is it just how it's sourced? It's coming from companies that are that are okay with that
0: use? Uh, The sources are there for it. Uh, We can't actually tell who or what they are because companies are not really all that wild about having themselves associated with killing people in a climate that is more and more against capital punishment. Not everywhere, certainly, but in many places – um, and uh, well, the other thing we know is that the courts have approved this particular set of chemicals as not causing additional suffering.
1: Moving down the list, we talked back in August uh, about the death in custody of Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, yes. And that certainly has occasioned a lot of discussion since then. And without going too far down a conspiracy rabbit hole, Uh just want to mention the fact that there have been some new developments in that case as well. And most recently, I I believe it's uh, the estate or the family of Jeffrey Epstein has hired an expert who has opined that the autopsy report the official autopsy mm-hmm. uh, there are some there are some problems with it some questions that haven't been answered can that's you, can right talk about
0: that yeah this new autopsy result and it came from a well-regarded forensic pathologist hired by the family uh, contains some indications that are more consistent with a homicide than a suicide. Uh, These kinds of things are generally beyond uh, um, uh, certainly my pay grade and most civilians, uh, but they can be anything from the ways that uh, the pathologist sees certain blood vessels behaving um, uh, after death, right before death, Um, Something called petechiae, I think, uh, uh, the the way that these blood vessels or or, uh, parts of the lungs behave in certain circumstances that would indicate strangulation uh, by a homicidal source instead of the suicide uh, that was the initial finding uh, by the uh, first medical examiner. Uh, and that it would have implications certainly for the family, perhaps for the finances of Mr. Epstein's heirs, who knows. Uh, at this point, I, I can only say that there's been no definitive refutation of this new report, but there's also been no independent confirmation of the new report. So uh, you're exactly right when you say let's not go down the conspiracy road uh, because that was all too common in the first set of reactions to Jeffrey Epstein's death. And I think that's what I spoke about in the news bonus. Uh, you know, this is a system failure of monumental proportions. It's probably not some kind of murder conspiracy, though it might look like it. Um, so we don't want to be tempted by this. It's something to keep our eyes on and a of course, we'll do that here as more information comes out. But at this point, it's just interesting to note that like the Kennedy assassination, mm-hmm. like so many other cases, uh, we can have competing scientific uh, explanations for the same phenomenon. It doesn't, doesn't tell us who's right or wrong, and we should stay away from the idea of simply latching onto the one that uh, is most consistent with our own beliefs or our own first inclinations. We should look for the one that is most backed up by science, independently confirmed, and so forth.
1: And I mean, really, the key point that I took away from your comments back in August was that, you know, in in a sense, uh, whatever happened in this particular instance, the point is that no one should be surprised that something like That's this might right. happen. The system is so broken that... I that doesn't mean that this or that version of events, uh, you know, is true or is not true, but what everyone should understand is that prison suicide is,
0: is unfortunately very common. Very common indeed. Sadly so. Um, uh, you'll see when we get to College Behind Bars coming up, uh, if, if uh, people in the audience do watch that series, and I would commend it... In the first episode, there's a, there's a moment with the uh, state secretary of corrections. I think that's his title. And he talks about the thing that he most needs to work on to prevent is not prison homicides, but prison suicides. Right. It's incredibly common. Uh, and that is the most likely explanation for what happened to Epstein, but more than that to so many other people continuing in in a somewhat similar vein and again disclaiming
1: um we're not going to get too carried away with conspiracy theories uh Easy however to do these days <laughs> yeah seriously yeah. the um and we talked about the case of Amber Geiger and the mm-hmm. murder of Botham Jean a lot of uh, memorable events in that court trial and a conviction of Amber Geiger and the judge's response to that yes. the, what happened in that courtroom was fascinating and hadn't been more than a day or two after we posted that episode that another big uh, development happened in that story. This was the murder, apparently, of one of the key witnesses in the case against Amber Geiger.
0: That's right. Uh, This man's name was, I think, Joshua Brown. Joshua Brown. And uh, Brown was a key witness in the case. Uh, And then just a couple of days afterwards, he ends up shot dead uh and again uh depending on your point of view of the case and the forces at play and so forth it's very easy to grab the theory that well, they were just punishing or silencing a witness uh, who might actually have to testify if there was ever a retrial Um, and uh, it's not hard to see why people go there but by now the investigation has fully played out There have been arrests made. It turns out Mr. Brown was killed in a drug deal gone bad, and uh, there's good evidence of this. Uh, The police department down there uh, tracked all of this down, uh, named the names of the people who were involved, Uh, And it was simply a situation where Mr. Brown, who had had issues before uh, with the criminal justice system of his own, uh, he uh, uh, was involved uh, as the potential seller in a drug deal. Uh, Communications were found between Mr. Brown and the potential buyers. Apparently, when they came together physically, there was an argument, there was a shooting. Uh, Mr. Brown shot somebody, and he was in turn shot by them, and he was killed. So, uh, sadly, it had a much more pedestrian and usual explanation. No conspiracy theories necessary.
1: At the same time, fairly unusual for that kind of violence to happen in what was, uh, uh, as I understood it, just a marijuana situation. It was just not. Like- yeah, uh,
0: it is. Um, it, it is not that common, especially in what I would call uh, smaller, kind of mid-level quantity deals. I mean, there was the amount of marijuana involved was enough to, uh, with a, so that it fit in a backpack. Mm-hmm. So that could be a pound or something. I'm just guessing here. Um, but not more than that. It isn't like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth. There was apparently a personal altercation between buy, excuse me, seller and the several buyers. There was some kind of argument right away when they were together. Uh, that resulted in first one shooting and then Mr. Brown's own shooting uh, and his death. Uh, after the, uh, uh, the actions after the death, uh, the police had the opportunity to get a warrant and search Mr. Brown's residence, and they found a great quantity of marijuana. But that wasn't in play during this killing. It was a s- small-ish uh, m- amount of marijuana. So unusual, but uh, think bad things happen in drug deals. I mean, that's just all you can say. What did
1: you make of the, the police department's response to that, holding a press conference uh, immediately?
0: saying we essentially we had nothing to do with this is that unusual a very yes in a case like this uh, one would hope that there would be quick action and best of all quick apprehension of whoever was responsible for the violence no matter who the victim is whether the victim is a drug dealer or or a perfectly innocent person just walking down a street. But it's very unusual for uh, the police department and a very high-ranking member of the police department to come out and give a televised press conference. And I think they were simply responding to the great interest in the case brought through uh, Mr. Brown's contact with the Amber Geiger matter. I mean, people look at this and they say, hmm, he was probably killed by the police, and, and this would sort of suggest that the police
1: uh, would would think that that
0: is a conclusion that many people would draw. Exactly. And they had so they had reason to want to counter that as soon as, as they were able to do so accurately and fully. And I think they got right on it, and they were not hesitant at all to come out and let the public know, no, don't go down there. We had nothing to do with this. Uh, because otherwise, uh, if this is just a regular case, no press conference.
1: A little more recently, in the case of Donald Trump's tax returns, which has uh-huh. been before the Second Circuit uh, mm-hmm. recently, we just got a decision in that.
0: That's right. This is a very interesting matter because uh, there's some, uh, it's on a parallel track with some of the impeachment things. And this is a set of investigations that began during the Mueller probe. Uh, Some evidence was uncovered during this uh, that there may be some issues with the president's finances, going back to before he was the president, involving his companies, uh, not even necessarily him personally, but his companies. And, of course, you would need tax returns in order to thoroughly investigate that. That would be done in any case like this with Mm -hmm. any other person. Well, uh, the president famously, while he was running for president, refused to release his tax returns. And then since he's been president, of course, he's been consistent with that. He hasn't released anything. Um, And what has happened here is that investigation was effectively handed over to the Manhattan, New York, district attorney, not even the federal authorities, but the state authorities have picked this investigation up. Um, The district attorney is a man named Cyrus Vance Jr. And he has pursued the case with some vigor. But he ran into this same stone wall from the White House. No, we will not release the tax returns. So the Manhattan DA went to the accounting firm that uh, did President Trump's taxes in the eight years in which they are interested, and said, hand them over, here's a subpoena. And the president asserted, no, no, they can't do that, that's actually my stuff, um, and I don't release them from any privilege, and and the president is simply immune from any investigation while the president. That was the assertion. The president is immune from investigation. And on the recent bonus we did, what we were talking about was the decision of a district court, a federal district court, uh, in which the president had brought a legal action to stop the local DA in New York from getting his tax returns from his accounting firm. The accounting firm was willing to hand them over. They want to comply with the subpoena. But he has asserted a presidential privilege against that. And the district court said, what presidential privilege could you possibly have with regard to tax returns that all covered years and subjects and businesses that had nothing to do with you being president. And it simply can't be that the president is immune from all investigations. It might be the president is immune from indictment while president. We've had a lot of discussions about that in the context of the Mueller probe, The Department of Justice has come to that conclusion two or three different times under different presidents, that the president can't be criminally indicted while president. You have to wait until after Mm -hmm. the president is out of office. But uh, the district court said, well, that has nothing to do with being investigated now. Investigation is not an indictment. and No. Well, in the just 10 days or two weeks since the district court decided that, the president appealed it to the Second Circuit. And in I, I cannot emphasize enough how fast this happened. Hmm. the The Second Circuit, the appeals court, has already decided the case as we are sitting here recording this. It was something like two, two and a half weeks. And they just don't do anything that fast. I mean, this is really remarkable. Mm. And the Second Circuit, uh, which is a a federal appeals court, it has jurisdiction over New York, um, and that district court that made the initial decision, the Second Circuit said, nothing doing, Mr. President. Uh, We hearken back to the case of the Nixon tapes. Mm. And in that case, uh, for those uh, who follow these sorts of things know history or maybe were even alive, that would be me, while all this was going on, uh, Nixon had famously recorded his White House conversations. That piece of information came out in congressional hearings and eventually uh, a grand jury subpoena was brought to get those tapes to the special prosecutor. Nixon refused. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court basically says, sorry, pal, you may be the president, but the grand jury has a right to every person's evidence. And that was what the Second Circuit pointed to here. In record time. I mean, you cannot believe how fast this is for a court of appeals.
1: So do you view this as settled then or is it going back to the Supreme Court, which is obviously a little bit more favorably disposed toward Donald Trump than than the Nixon
0: Supreme Court was? I don't think there's any doubt it's going to be appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, The president and his team have already announced that they plan to do that. Whether the court will actually hear it or not, of course, is another thing. They have complete discretion over whether they hear – 99.9% Ninety-nine point nine percent of all cases that could go to them. There, there are very few exceptions. They're built right into the Constitution. They have, uh, they have to do with uh, disputes between states and things like that. So even a case like this, the Supreme Court could simply turn away and you know basically say, no, look, this is settled.
1: Well, you, you might read the incredibly fast turnaround from the appeals court as the court wanting to make a really unambiguous point. You
0: bet. It'll be interesting to see what they do. The Second Circuit is undoubtedly saying, in its written opinion, the, the president doesn't have a leg to stand on, and in the speed with which it handled this is saying, yeah, we see this is important, and it was not hard to settle. You know, I mean, if they had, if there were issues to be hashed out, if there was disagreement, they'd take whatever weeks and months it takes because appeals courts know something, might know something is important, but they don't hesitate to take their time and mm-hmm. get the majority and, and all that stuff together. Um, the speed with which this moved is itself a message up the line to the Supreme Court. Uh, there's just nothing to talk it's about. It's not a here. hard calculation to do. Not perform. a hard one, yeah. Harkening
1: way back to the beginning of this show, if I remember right, it was our very first episode was on police body cameras. Oh, yes, it was. It was our pilot. And at at that time, we were talking about it from a Pennsylvania standpoint, because uh, as everyone knows, that's where we are. Uh, In Pittsburgh recently, there's
0: been some news on this front. That's right. Uh, Body cameras have been a subject of interest to me really since before they appeared in any numbers in the United States. I happened to get a glimpse of one of these things back in 2009 when I was serving on a, uh, a countywide task force on a completely different thing. I wrote, and I was so taken with the technology and its possibilities that I wrote the very first American legal journal article about the possibilities for body cameras. That was published in 2010. And I watched. Uh, fascinated as their popularity really exploded from almost nothing to everywhere after the events in Ferguson. And that was one of the reasons that we took that as our pilot subject, uh, the subject of our pilot episode. Um, In Pittsburgh, in particular, uh, I had the privilege and, and good fortune to serve on an internal police department task force that wrote the policy for the Pittsburgh Police Department to use body cameras, that policy has now been enforced for you know, several years. Uh, one of the hang-ups with the use of body cameras, and it is a crucial thing, uh, has always been uh, in any policy, when do you turn things on? When do they have to be turned on? Uh, because if it is a completely discretionary uh, thing, that the camera can be turned on when the officer wants it or doesn't want it, you have really nothing at all except a kind of self-serving record. Um, In order for these things to actually serve any kind of public purpose, there have to be rules on it must be turned on in the following situations. And what I've recommended and what we in fact did in Pittsburgh is we have a policy that says – It must be turned on in the following situations. It may be turned on in these, and it cannot be turned on in this third category. And that gives officers a good, clear idea of how to use them. Uh, But one thing has always stuck out. People don't always follow the policy. Some jurisdictions just don't want a policy that is mandatory in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was never a way to fix the possibility of either purposeful or inadvertently not turning the camera on and 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 this has been one of the things that made body cameras very different from dash cams dash cams mounted in police cars have for years had a technical solution to this anytime the the emergency lights or the sirens in a squad car go on the camera goes on automatically hmm and stays on until turned off. And there was no comparable technological fix. The city council in Pittsburgh has just voted to spend the money for 900 plus brand new body cameras. So they're replacing mm. the ones they had and they're bringing a whole bunch of new ones online. And one of the key features of this new model is something that goes along with it. It's mounted on the police officer's belt, I believe. And anytime a police officer takes a taser out hmm. or takes a firearm out, the camera is supposed to automatically activate. And it's supposed to automatically activate all other cameras in the near vicinity through Bluetooth. Right. So it's a technological advance uh, that we simply didn't have even two or three years ago when I was working with our police department here. It's kind of surprising when you just think about what's
1: widespread already in consumer-grade technology. Yes. My wireless, you know, earbuds know when they go into my ears and sync up with my phone immediately. My phone knows
0: what position I'm holding it in. Well, I want to emphasize, I haven't actually seen this in action, uh, so I don't know exactly how it works or how reliable it is, and those are those are important questions. But let's assume it works well and it's 100% reliable. I guess the thing to notice here is that it is only a partial fix, mm-hmm. and it shows actually that the 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 question is actually a little more uh, a little more complicated than just see when you put your earbuds in, you're doing a a pretty definite gesture and right. motion of the things you're separating them. Then you're putting them like this. Uh, you can't see my hands, but you know what I'm doing if you use earbuds. Um, so uh, with a police officer the motions of taking something off the belt, uh, a taser or a firearm, might be common to all. But, I mean, if I just think back to the policy we drew up here, we want those cameras on in a much greater variety of situations than Mm -hmm. just those. So assuming they were able to, uh, to conform the, technol- the technology so that it does go on in those very serious situations, and those are serious, maybe the most serious, when you draw a firearm or a taser, those are uses of force. That doesn't address uh, the situation where uh, the officer stops and frisks. That doesn't address the officer stopping a person and asking questions for an investigation or anything. So it's a first step because the variety of situations and physical uh, manifestations of those situations is so different than so many other things that it's really hard to make that fix. So
1: even if you could guarantee that if a weapon is unholstered, the tape begins rolling, we're back to that old
0: problem of we don't know what happened before the tape begins. We don't know what happened before it, and it still wouldn't help us in that infinite variety of other situations. So it's progress, but it's only one step.
1: Continuing in that theme, since we talk often on the show about technology mm-hmm. and changing technology and where that intersects with law enforcement, we did an episode back in, oh, I think this was uh, in June, going way back last summer, about the use of facial recognition technologies. And we That's shared right. a video from London of a fellow that was asked to uncover his face so that he could be scanned and That's refused. That's right. And since then, there has been this upsurge of global protests in Mm -hmm. major cities, and Hong Kong in particular right now is, is very hot. All of that footage you see people have covered their faces and there's an element of this that has to do with whether you're allowed to cover your face in public. That's right. So they're acting in defiance of that rule. There have been all kinds of kind of inventive innovative ways to thwart this technology that you're seeing in those settings. Where do you see this going as we're seeing, you know, law enforcement facial recognition technology being applied not in a usual law enforcement
0: setting but in a political protest context. But oh, yes. This is so, so interesting. You know, we did our first piece about facial recognition way back in our second season when we had uh, a really excellent guest from the Georgetown Privacy and Technology Center talk about where facial recognition was at that point. And uh, even back then, there were still substantial technical issues inaccuracies with regard uh, particularly to uh, the faces of people of color and the faces of women, uh, lots more false positives in those categories. We knew and still know that the technology, if properly cared for and worked on, will get better in those respects. But that leaves a whole host of questions and challenges to people interested not only in criminal justice but in civil liberties generally and particularly in protests um, uh, to face. Uh, And what we're seeing right now in Hong Kong and in many other places in the world, but particularly in Hong Kong, uh, is the use of facial recognition, uh, among other surveillance technologies, to uh, head off and intimidate protesters. China is kind of the, the, the online right now living experiment in the use of technology to, to quash protest and for social control. We've seen this all over the place in reporting on how the treatment of the Uyghur minority in China, mm-hmm. and we are seeing it in Hong Kong too. And one of the things that the authorities are doing is deploying facial recognition in Hong Kong as a way of figuring out who the protesters are and then taking action against them later, either charging with them, charging them with crimes, uh, retaliating uh, against them in some other ways, uh, attacking their employment status. It could be a, a lot of things. And if that were to be combined with the so-called social scores that the Chinese government is now compiling for its own citizens in the People's Republic, that capability, I mean, is a truly chilling vision. The idea of Orwellian kind of gets overused, but this is it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. And so what you're seeing now are with these countermeasures with the masks, which then were, they, they very quickly put a law in place that, oh, masks are illegal. Uh, uh, countermeasures to this. It's umbrellas to it. Yes, because they would, uh, you know, they could cover up the face. They can take the light away. They can do all kinds of things. Uh, and of course, the umbrellas were the symbol of the protests a few years ago in Hong mm-hmm. Kong. I mean, All of this is a reaction to the way that this technology and others, too, are being brought to bear more and more and more, not just to enforce the law and catch bad guys, but as a tool of social control. And that should make every person who believes in democracy and believes that dissent is a, a, an important human right, should make all of us really stand up and think about our own uses of facial recognition in this country. It's more reason, as if we needed more, to think about that technology now before mm-hmm. it is widely deployed everywhere and to have rules on how it can be used and whether a citizen has to submit to it or not.
1: Yeah. That's so important, the idea of the sort of implicit consent that the population gives, and it's, that's why it's sure. important that this is happening in Hong Kong, which is within the Chinese sphere of control, but not they're not, not able completely. to directly crack down the way they could on the mainland. So what you have is this mass protest movement. So the question is, can this technology you know, do what it's supposed to do at scale, at this scale. And what we're seeing is in these sort of ad hoc responses and countermeasures, it's, it's an open question, right? So it is. depending on what happens in Hong Kong, that could potentially change how other governments uh, use or don't use these technologies.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a live experiment. Right now, uh, all governments, uh, no matter, even if they say we abhor what the Chinese are doing in Hong Kong, they are watching this. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you they want to know if this works at scale, as you say, because uh, if it does, I mean, it it is a truly game-changing, for me, frightening uh, evolution in what a government could do. I mean, you know, I can still remember a few years ago when the license plate uh, reader systems rolled out. We did an episode on that. Uh, that people would buy these uh, covers you could put over the license plate. So they could be read by the human eye without any problem, Uh, but uh, the cameras supposedly could not take a high-speed picture of the license plate. Uh, So we're always going to have this kind of cat-and-mouse game with technology, but what we know is that technology just continually gets better better, more precise, more capable, and more stealthy over time, and cheaper altogether. That's just the reality of how technology works and how it evolves. And at some point, if it can be done at scale, Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have a tool of social control that will be impossible to get away from. And I don't think anybody wants to live in that world.
1: Another story that is uh, specific to where we're based, but that I think is broadly applicable, and this is the question of what's called Marcy's Law, and I want to actually just let the question asker who called our Ask Dave hotline to put this question to you to speak for herself. This is Emily from Pittsburgh. Let's hear Emily's question. Hello, my name is Emily, and I am from Pittsburgh. I know you're probably already working on something about this, but I was wondering for
0: more information about Marcy's Law, which is going to
1: come up in our November 5th election. Uh, I've read over what the law proposes, and I am confused about why
0: victims of crime would be allowed to refuse discovery requests by the legal team of the accused. There doesn't seem to be any basis for that. I agree with the other parts of the law, but that makes me really nervous, and I don't know why that is. All right. Thank you so much.
1: First of all, uh, let's address the status of Marcy's Law in Pennsylvania. It is, it's is—it's kind of on
0: indefinite hold at the moment. We should stipulate that first. That's right. It's been challenged in the course. It was challenged before our recent election day where it was voted on. And the nature of the challenge involved uh, some very, very technical issues about how many different kinds of questions and issues can be in a constitutional amendment to the state constitution, and then some questions of due process, which Emily's very interested in. The courts took the thing up. The upshot was that the courts in our state decided that people can vote on it because it was too late to take it off the ballot. But the votes on Marcy's law will not be counted until the legal questions are resolved. If the legal questions are resolved such that it is okay to have as a constitutional amendment, then the votes will be counted and we'll see if it passed. But if they're not, the votes will never be counted. So it's kind of odd. It just came all too late to get it off the ballot.
1: So this is all up in the air still, So, but yes. maybe let's back up and explain what what this
0: law actually is, what it would do. All right. Marcy's Law is a multi-state effort by uh, a gentleman who's a billionaire who I believe lives in California. He sponsored this effort in a number of states. What it is is an attempt to put victims' rights first and foremost, in the criminal process. I don't know if it has been always done at the level of constitutional amendment for state constitutions in every state where it's been tried or if sometimes it's been just at the level of legislation. But here in Pennsylvania, it is put on the ballot as a proposed constitutional amendment. And what it would do is it would give crime victims uh, a lot of different rights to uh, be present, to be notified about different stages of any criminal proceeding. And it says that people who are victims do not have to talk to the defense. Uh, And this, I think, has attracted a lot of attention on the due process front because uh, the ability to interview witnesses is often key to preparing any defense. So uh, it has the appearance at least and maybe the effect of interfering with the constitutional right. That's the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. The constitutional right to put on a full and fair defense when a person is charged with a crime. I don't think anybody has any objection with victims' rights generally, or with victims being notified about hearings and uh, allowing them to participate. The problem with Marcy's Law, I think, for the people who have challenged it and the organizations that have challenged it, and that includes here in Pennsylvania, the League of Women Voters and the ACLU, is that it tilts the criminal justice playing field in a way that clearly not just empowers victims, but disfavors defendants. And when a person is charged with a crime, we all know that's serious, um, but it's a government process that is designed to take a person's freedom away. Now, that person may very much deserve that in the end, Mm -hmm. but in terms of the determination of whether a person is innocent or guilty— It's so important to us, to our basic bedrock values, to get the process right. That's all we have. And the rights of defendants that exist now, uh, while I think anybody would tell you they have been weakened over the last three or four decades, they're there to make sure that that government process runs correctly and fairly, because we, the people— have an investment in that fairness. And so I think that the problem that people have with Marcy's law is that it tilts away from that vision and those values, and it enshrines it in a state constitution. So if we found out in five years this didn't, that didn't work out the way we had hoped, mm-hmm. and maybe we'd like some changes, you couldn't just go to the legislature and say, let's pass a new law You'd have to do is have a new constitutional amendment, and it's a difficult process.
1: So that brings us to the end of the uh, housekeeping agenda that we had set out for this episode.
0: Mm -hmm. Anything else we want to talk about? No, we've been pretty thorough here. I mean, uh, I hope our listeners uh, stay with us through our hiatus period, and uh, we'll be back in January with a lot of new things. Uh, We're very excited for everything that's coming up. We hope you are, too, and we hope more than anything that you find the information and insight you need here uh, because that's the whole reason we do this. So for Josh Rollerson, my producer, uh, I'm David Harris, and we will be back with you next time. Be with us on November 19th for our special interview episode with Lynn Novick and Wesley Keynes on College Behind Bars. Thanks.
1: Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com/criminalinjustice to become a member. Find past episodes, show notes and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.